Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Jan Bartlett with you until six tonight. What Bolsonaro will meet for Brazil on the program today, and not only for Brazil but for the world as well. I'll be speaking with Dr. Ralph Newmark, who's the director of the Latin American Studies Institute at La Trobe University. The Invictus Games, the Unconvenient Truce. Michelle Fay will be telling us all about it, and she's working with the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. The last genetics for the year with Bob Phelps, the referendum in New Caledonia with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. But first, let's hear it for Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, journalist, when we discovered our big bank supremos and chair people and directors and anyone who mattered knew absolutely nothing about the few little problems like charging fees for no service. Why not? They charge fees for everything else or providing income insurance to unemployed people. Well, it's not a bad incentive to go out and get a job so you can lose it and claim all the rip-offs, but we'll return to that because primarily a week when the nervous excitement of the state election reached a crescendo. Lord Rupert of Wapping, desperate to set us straight to correct the calamitous mistake the electorate made four years ago, yet also aware the evil Greens were even worse than the disastrous socialists. Well, how dare the people defy Lord Rupert and come up with a many times more calamitous result? Although Lord Rupert would have seen some relief in the collapse of the even more evil Greens in numbers elected, although even most of those who lost increased their vote, but the socialists increased theirs by more, thanks to the caring business class vote, whom Lord Rupert advised us all to vote for, its party's vote disappearing into the depths of Bass Strait and or suffering from deals which elected people only about point something of 1% of people wanted elected, like the eponymous Derren Lynchum High Party or the Everyone Must Have a Gun or Something Party, while the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review conceded by Thursday the Socialists would win but didn't deserve to which presumably meant that the caring business class party did deserve to. Its dynamic, charismatic leader, the lobster with a mobster, putting the final touch on his progressive policies by promising both to open and close, like open the state trade office in Jerusalem, move it from Tel Aviv, sort of a mini version of US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, and our own big supremo scuttled them more less than although the policy worked so well for scuttled them, that alone says wonders for the lobster with political genius, especially since the caring business class itself pointed out Tel Aviv is the financial capital, and so he would have been moving away from the action, but why let logic get in the way of ideology? Open and close 
the safe injection facility. But for those who didn't therefore die on the streets, he had them covered by his major policy to build 133 or so, give or take, new prisons to address the serious problem of declining crime rates, which, as our federal Keeping Us Secure Minister Constable Peter Duffer has bemoaned, makes people too afraid to leave their homes and especially to sit down at a restaurant. So to be fair, Lobster with a Mobster should have also promised to compensate all restaurant owners for the losses emanating from the socialists and greens, pro-terrorists, pro-black African gang surrender, and also offer all restaurant owners a state funeral, because only the rich deserve state funerals. But that's a bilateral policy, and thankfully the Darren Lynch of Highlot and the socialist policy to hit us with hundreds and hundreds of new a sorry, constabulary should take care of all that. Not like the terrifying unilateral policy unearthed with invaluable investigative journalism by Lord Rupert Thursday. Green's plan raises fears. A diabolical plan, listener. Sit down. You'll, you'll need to sit down. To change planning rules enforcing minimum apartment sizes, eight-star sustainability ratings, and inclusionary zoning to mandate affordable housing options in new developments, which would, as Lord Rupert pointed out, quoting several stunned developers, have only increased the costs of housing. In fact, in Lord Rupert's terms, send cost of apartments skyrocketing, like apartments themselves, and worse, force renters to pay as much as $50 extra a week. How cruel, how heartless, forcing developers to build apartments people can live in. When developers obviously build tiny, energy-sapping, unaffordable, affordable apartments so people can afford the unaffordable affordable. And I do wish someone would give us a more definitive definition, tautology, of affordable. Because then we could wander into the city and tell all the homeless we encounter just how much they have to save from the loose chains thrown in their hats or whatever to be able to rush out and buy a tiny, energy-saving, unaffordable, affordable apartment. Although, if that's the case now, the, the case the evil Greens wanted to destroy, then we can but ponder why all those homeless people haven't already got their own little apartment. Wastrels. Lord, it's got to be their own fault. And full marks to the lobster with a mobster for, for promising, sadly in vain, to provide all those roofs over their heads, as long as they didn't mind looking at the world through bars. But thank goodness Lord Rupert saved us from the disaster by exposing this heartless policy to force developers to provide livable, sustainable, affordable, whatever that is, apartments. But we can only wish the lobster with a mobster had run a slightly less forgettable campaign because the size of the socialist landslide means policies like more freeways and environmental destruction and the privatisation giveaway and destruction of public housing will now proceed without constraint. Despite the obvious that in many seats traditional caring business class supporters voted not for but against not that I'm sure we didn't all enjoy watching the caring business class lot cop it. Given the choice, it, if, if it can be called that, it's, um, it's our one enjoyment on election nights, watching the losers lose. But last week we mentioned Lord Rupert did devote quite a few lines to a Greens-dominated council holding an anti-Cole Carroll 
Carols Night, changing the words of popular carols and how this was so cringeworthy and made the Greens the Grinch that stole Christmas, according to Lord Rupert and the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs. But one of the supermarket duopoly changing a popular carol to, to promote itself in a ubiquitous ad must, by dint of their silence, putting the, be putting the fun, fun, fun back into Christmas. Well, this week there's one salt, sugar and fat million calories per bite product. One of them is pushing with a, clear, with a dear, dear little child saying, I want to lick the plate. Which could be the case, because if his and he's a he, dear, dear little child, his parents bought all their Christmas fare at the uh, Duopoly's prices, he probably needs to lick the plate. He'd be near starvation, poor little kid. Although he'd be starving on the highest of high-quality products, because I notice their fruit and vegetables are usually about four, five to six times more expensive than what I pay at the market. So clearly, they must be amazing quality. And the U.S. OB has finally conceded that its very, very, very close friend, the Saudi Crown Prince, deserves condemnation for the murder of a fake news evil journalist as overnight at the U.N. of the U.S. of the U.N. of the world, its oh-so-even-handed ambassador Nikki Haley, the good guys, announced the whole world must condemn this latest heinous action in the most damning terms because evil, evil Russia... Uh, Oh, hang on, Russia. Where did it come from? Um, oh, sorry, wrong issue. We, we obviously don't need more information about this one, or, or we may never know either way anyway. We know that most generous action, action by her commentator-in-chief, Donald, celebrating Thanksgiving last week, as traditionally he spares one turkey while the nation slaughters millions. I forgive Turkey for its aggression to my very, very, very close friend. Worst aggression ever, ever. Its outrageous attack on my very, very close friend. Worst outrageous attack ever, ever over a fake news journalist getting his just desserts for criticizing, worst criticizing ever, ever on a cherished practitioner of liberty, freedom and democracy. And indeed it is a neck-and-neck -neck race between Turkey and Donald's very, very, very close friend in the liberty, freedom and democracy stakes. And Donald seemed to, it's often hard to tell, seemed finally to lay the blame for Saudi murdering a journalist. It was evil Iran. And unlike his election attacks on Hillary, who deserved to go to jail, the revelation his daughter had also been using a personal email thingy in the White House was also fake news. Ah, but, but we have proof. It's fake proof. Fake news proof. But if the journalist got what he deserved, not getting what they deserved, these poor banking executives facing the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission, like the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank chair, Catherine Livingstone Workers Sweat, who conceded there was an impression, an impression executives were punished, like being asked to hand back a small percentage of their millions in bonuses, only if their sins became public. Well... Yeah, Catherine, I think people got the impression, mainly because it was what happened. Except for her predecessor, David Turner Hughes Prophet, who refused to hand back 40% of his director's fees when the proverbial hit the fan, because, he explained, clinging firmly to the 40%, he knew nothing about any of the mess splattering from the fan, even though he was covered in it. And for goodness sake, how would he be expected to know? He was just sharing the whole show.
But finally, the evidence has been consistent. Every witness has sworn she or he knew nothing about any of this, and it was everybody else, and they all pointed at each other. Whatever happened to Honour Among Thieves? Good afternoon. And it's good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy, and as usual, Mr Kevin Healy will be back on air tomorrow morning at 9am for City Limits. It's 11 minutes past four. The election of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil has shocked and horrified many people around the world. An open far-righter, misogynist, pro-gun, pro-torture, earning him the label of the most hated elected official in the democratic world. Ralph Newmark, director of the Institute for Latin American Studies at La Trobe University, and regular programmer on Latin American Update on Sunday morning, is one of those horrified at his election. And this is the Latin American Update program one week after the election results were known. It's absolutely impossible to ignore or not talk about today the events in Brazil last Sunday. As all of you know, the presidential election was won by Jair Bolsonaro. This man is... Well, named has many, many nicknames and phrases associated with him. I rather like the term Bozonaro, but there are terms like the tropical Trump, Trump on steroids. All these, I think, fit pretty well. As a Brazilian historian, I think clearly I can talk about, uh, use this program in editorial, etc., to discuss some of the issues involved both in Brazil but much bigger than that, this really, really is a serious issue. And it's a symptom of many global problems. But the ramifications of Bolsonaro being elected could have, and I, I think I, I really do use the word catastrophic ramifications for the whole world. And I'll explain that as I go on. Many of you know, I mean, this man himself, a very lacklustre character, I think he's been in part of the Brazilian Congress for about 20-odd years, barely made a speech, barely made an impact. But when the time was right, he's really made an impression. His package of policies, I mean, have been described, and I think quite ac accurately, as far-right. He's overtly sexist, he's clearly racist, He's demonstrably homophobic. He's against equal marriage. He's anti-abortion. He's anti-drug liberalisation. He is anti-indigenous land rights. He is anti-affirmative action. I mean, <laughs> how much do you want? But there's one other aspect of him that really, if those things aren't a concern to you, which I clearly imagine they are, there is one real issue here that affects everybody. Those other aspects clearly are catastrophes for Brazilians if he implements many of the um, policies he's hinted at. But if he implements the other policy, which is an environmental issues and Amazonia, in relation to the development of Amazonia, then we are all in deep trouble, and particularly our grandchildren. If you have grandchildren, you'll be really worried. If you don't, you should be worried anyway, because we are looking here not just at human life, we're looking at life on Earth. I know this sounds very alarming, but I'll explain why. The overall 
rubric of what I want to talk about is that the rise of people like Bolsonaro in Brazil is very clearly linked to other phenomena that we're seeing around the world. I mean, the most obvious being clearly Donald Trump in the United States, but also Brexit, also the rise of other right-wing leaders in Europe, And, of course, if you like, the reversal in Latin America, to some extent, anyway, of the so-called pink tide. We're seeing that, obviously, uh, in particularly in places like uh, Argentina and Chile. The problem is this, that since the 1980s, clearly as a result of the multiple crises in the 1970s that hit world global capitalism. Many of them are a multiplicity of reasons that came together, if you like, as they say, in a perfect storm. One was, of course, the enormous amount of government spending by the United States on the sort of two wars it was fighting. The first war was, of course, the Vietnam War. Uh, which it poured clearly billions into. The second war, of course, was an attempt by President Johnson to do something about the issue of internal poverty in the United States, particularly civil rights. I mean, we see the rise of anti-segregation laws, the civil rights law, I think, of 1965, uh, about a 100 years after the U.S. Civil War. So it took a long time, certainly, to bring the South under control in terms of direct discrimination against African-Americans. But this double war coincided as it, as we run into the 70s with, of course, the oil crisis. Now, industrialization in the world, which of course um, starts really in Britain in the 1750s, runs through in the um, 1800s, 19th century, clearly started, I mean, this is a, a background to the whole problem of clearly a fossil fuel based industrialization in the what, what could be called the uh, first world as it developed. I mean, clearly starting in Britain, spreading to, of course, Germany, who industrialised very quickly in the late 19th century after Germany became one country under Bismarck, and, of course, in the United States, in the north of the United States. The civil war in the US is very much can be seen as really that struggle between two political economies. You had a northern United States, which was industrial, rapidly, was getting a lot of European migrants coming across, and you had a southern United States that was a plantation slave economy. Now, of course, the issue here is clearly that those economies are not compatible because an industrial economy needs consumers, basically, because they make things. Slave, as I sort of often say flippantly, that slaves don't go shopping. They might need some minimal requirements, but they are not consumers in any industrial sense. So the United States had to sort that out, and they did in the 1860s. The problem was, and is, that the industrialization of the world was driven primarily by fossil fuels. Clearly, um, I suppose, wood initially, then coal, and then coal and oil. Now, the development of the West had been driven throughout the 20th century, uh, once um, uh, oil became a major source of energy, by virtually free oil. I mean, the price of oil for most of the 20th century till the 1970s was minimal. 
This was because clearly, uh, particularly uh, the Seven Sisters U.S. oil companies and British ones had dominated the Middle East politically and were made sure that oil was selling at you know something like three dollars a barrel. In the 70s, of course, it went through the roof with OPEC. Now, when you get fossil fuel cost, your basic input costs going through the roof, clearly other things happen, inflation, even a phenomenon known as stagflation, which saw economic lack of economic growth and a rise in unemployment, saw all sorts of uh, aberrations in the economy, such that the successful political economic policy that had got the Western world out of the Great Depression, which was formed by uh, speculation in the 1920s to the Great Crash in 29, and the saviour of capitalism clearly then was Keynesianism, in which the government, much unlike uh, Adam Smith's classical liberalism, had to step in and play a major role. I mean, most of people in Australia over the age of about 50 or 60 would remember a long boom, uh, particularly after World War II, of uh, a Keynesian mixed economy. Even old Ming himself was Keynesian in the sense that he saw the government having to play a major economic role. Of course, this all comes to a screaming halt by the end of the 70s with the, um, all those crises coming together to produce really the overriding political economy of the contemporary period since 1980, and that's neoliberalism. You can call it what you like, economic rationalism, Washington consensus. I think we all now call it neoliberalism, and this has become seemingly the only game in town, but it's not. But the problem is you even see traditional parties, working-class parties like the Australian Labor Party embracing neoliberalism under people like Hawke and Keating that in fact became a consensus that people thought that there was no other approach. Now, the problem with neoliberalism is that it is, uh, and it ties in clearly with the increase in globalisation, is that it is an attack on the working class. It's an attack on unions. It's an attack on government in terms of economic involvement. So what you see is privatisation, basically. You get the IMF forcing privatisations and structural adjustment policies throughout the world, and you get basically in the dominant countries countries in the world. Uh, well, the economists were clearly are people like Hayek and most famously Milton Friedman, but the politicians that drove this clearly um, were Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. This is really the legacy of those people. But there was the economists behind them that really drove it. Now, all the one leading up here is that the question we have to ask ourselves since the 80s is, has this consensus of neoliberalism, and I'm talking also about centre-left parties. Everyone embraced it. And we're going to talk in, I mean, Brazil, where there was a centre-left government from about 2002, when Lula, the only working-class person who's ever been president of Brazil, uh, came into office and he successfully passed the baton to Dilma Rousseff, one of his ministers, who, of course, was brought down in a coup in 2016. Even Lula, for trimming around the edges of at least uh, some level of attempt at redistribution, even they were knocked off. But, of course, Lula's attempt to placate the right in many ways didn't really change Brazil dramatically enough as it should. What we get, and the great measurement, I would say, of has neoliberalism worked is simply this. Has it provided prosperity for all? 
The answer clearly is no. We've entered a world since that period where employment is precarious, casual, part-time, the distribution of wealth is more skewed than ever. There are more billionaires, millionaires than ever. And what we're getting really is an evaporation of tra the traditional middle class whose children now will not be able to ever find permanent employment in any sense like their parents. They will find some sort of employment in terms of casual, contractual work. Predominantly, even people, of course, with university degrees will be finding working in the service sector, either as uh, baristas or uh, in aged care, which is probably going to be the fastest growing industry in the Western world. Of course, manufacturing industry is gone. The BRIC countries, which of course includes Brazil, Brazil, Russia, India and China, and I'm talking particularly China and India, and Brazil to an extent, are basically absorbed most of the manufacturing. Um, I think Australia's, uh, well, the fact that... Um, we, no more cars made here is a good example of that. And this, uh, there's people in Geelong would know what I'm talking about who worked in the Ford factory. In Brazil, and this is the point, that this confusion, I can I just say that the, the crisis in neoliberalism, I think the first, one of the major symptoms we've seen, is clearly the rise of Trump. Now, Trump is a man, a divisive figure, who really is catering to... I bet the best way to put it, I suppose, is the, the old white working class in the US, the people, the Pennsylvania people, the people in the steel industry, the Michigan people, the people in the car industry, through to Wisconsin, that whole, what really has become the deindustrialized rust belt of the United States. These are people who don't know where to turn. And what they turn to is someone like... Trump and Bolsonaro was the same thing, who work on division. So basically, it's good versus evil. It's basically us versus them. And, of course, always having to bounce off an enemy. In the United States, clearly, with the communist uh, Soviet Union long gone, it's clearly the Islamic people and, of course, always and perennially the Mexicans. We see this uh, this election coming around the corner in the United States. They've pulled the old Latino card again. Well, Trump's very good at that. And this, of course, is a cheap political trick to galvanise, because when you're scared, you vote with your fear. Fear is the most strongest motivation for everyone. Now, this has happened in Brazil, too. Because basically the neoliberal model there, which tied itself very much to the industrialisations had a turn down. And in course, Brazil moved to a major agribusiness model, which, of course, is basically soybeans to China and beef, cattle, hamburger, meat to the United States. Now, of course, with the general downturn, of course, with the GFC, Brazil went down. And, I mean, this was part of the problem Lula and Gilma had towards the end. But also inequality started to return to Brazil. I mean, it's been there terribly for hundreds of years, obviously. Lula did make some grounds where he did introduce some social welfare programs, but these, of course, after the coup of 2016 by uh, Michel Temer, have been reduced as well. 
Brazil is an important country. It's the, well, I mean, might say half of Latin America, but more than that, it is the custodian of the largest rainforest in the world, or most of the, that forest. We're going to come back because this really is the crunch. And I think I'll also maybe, as <laughs> historians shouldn't predict the future, but I think I'll perhaps say what I uh, fear may well happen in terms of Brazilian politics as well. What I want to play, and I think music does have a relevance here, is that way back in the 60s when the military coup of 1964, which of course was, was clearly the most brutal coup in Brazilian history, the military came out of the barracks against President João Goulart, who was, well, what could you say, uh, someone who spoke pretty left didn't do much but uh, when you spoke spoke like that in the uh, in that in the cold war the uh, washington weren't going to tolerate it and of course the brazilian military moved against him however musicians and other artistic people fought back the most interesting movement of the time was what's become known as tropicalia or tropicalismo movement which was given the uh, fear and, of course, danger in the time, decided to move to parody, satire, the use of almost a Dadaist critique of society, mass industrialization in Brazil, which was driven by the military after 64. And particularly the idea was to, uh, what, this was a period called actually the Brazilian economic miracle, in which Brazil grew GDP 10% per year from the sort of late 60s, early 70s. But within this incredible growth of GDP, we talk about development and growth, the gap between the rich and poor increased dramatically. So there was a, that's a very interesting phenomenon. I think people in Chile know about that as well. The words talk about uh, retouch the sky with anil, meaning a sort of indigo, meaning pollution is what they're talking about. They talk about industrial progress. The one, the line right at the end where we cut it off, basically says switches from Portuguese to English and says because it's made made in Brazil. And made in Brazil was a sort of catch tag of the export industrial economy that the military pushed so heavily and of course to the major disadvantage of most Brazilians. So music does have a role to play. I had to squeeze some music in somewhere. But I want to turn now to the issue of environment and what's going to happen in Brazil. The point about it is issues of the global environment are really complex in the sense that we all live in a world of nation states. Now, this is sort of, it's not, it's not fairly recent in many ways, really emerges in the late 1700s into the um, 19th century there. But there is really a sort of balance here between national sovereignty, and I'm talking about Brazil and the Amazon, and global responsibility. Now, if a country happens to have really historically, this incredible carbon dioxide sink. After all, what do plants do? They eat carbon dioxide and uh, out comes oxygen. What more could you want? The perfect pet. The point being that Brazil has always seen, and unfortunately it needs other alternatives, to see the Amazon as the unexplored, unexploited interior. Every other country has done that. I mean, there's always been, certainly the United States moved west. Many countries have used their, their spaces to develop attempts to do that. Uh, there's always been, uh, I mean, irrigation systems in um, the Riverina, which of course have caused disasters. But the point basically is that the construction of the Brazilian capital, Brasilia, 
in the late 50s, early 60s, was an indication that Brazil was going towards the interior. And that interior ends in the Amazon. But who owns the Amazon? I mean, this is a question just keeps going on and on in my head. Who owns the Amazon? Well, the Brazilians certainly say they do. And they'll decide what they do with it. But the problem is, it's going to affect all of us. And there really is this issue of what is economic development? Is it economic growth or is it, in a sense, a distributive process for the whole population? Environmental degradation. Now, look, this guy, Bolsonaro, is a, a climate denier, climate denier in Washington, a climate change denier. There's a climate change deniers in Canberra, as we all know. Now, the problem is with that attitude and with the Paris Agreement, really, I mean, at the maximum they've called for is a two-degree control of temperatures in the world over 2030. This is not going to be nearly enough if the Amazon starts being pulled down. What's at stake here is the future of life on Earth, if you care about it. The players, the stakeholders, not a word I like, but the people involved, I mean, clearly Brazil and its people. The indigenous people, can I say, Bolsonaro sees the indigenous people is just in the way. If there's something there that can be exploited, uh, even though the, the 1988 constitution of Brazil guarantees land rights, but of course, when it's applied, when uh, there's something there that uh, developers or other people want, goes out the window. The real problem here is the children of the future, and I mean, I really think this is really serious. What's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is that it depends really on the Brazilian people and particularly the left in Brazil. Now, during the period of the centre-leftish PT government of Lula and uh, Dilma, clearly the left splintered. He's, particularly Lula, his uh, approach to keeping, if you like, a generally a neoliberal model. I think he felt like many centre-left politicians, um, they ain't got much room to move. He certainly did uh, attempt some sort of attempts at alleviating the most serious poverty that seem to be working at a marginal level. But clearly that's all gone by the wayside. The problem is during the PT or the Lula government, the left split enormously. I mean, clearly those who supported Lula and those who, of course, said he wasn't doing enough. The most interesting sight I think I can remember in the last few years is when the coup d'etat of 2016, just before the Olympics, got rid of Dilma. The left came together, and they're still together, in the sense that, and there's nothing like adversity to bring the good old left together again, the left came together, they've hit the, they hit the streets. Now, the problem is, with his fairly close, I mean, there's 45% who voted against him, remember, so there's a lot of people out there who are disillusioned, and in fact scared, I would think, of what this man's going to do, that basically, if these people continue and they've started protests in the street, and in a way, what else can they do? My greatest fear, and uh, look, you know, it's not for me to predict the future, but if I was going to say, uh, and the worst possible scenario is that if the left does hold together, keep agitating, oppose when he does things like merging the environment department with the agricultural depart agriculture department, when he starts reversing things like same-sex marriage, when he starts taking indigenous land, these people, if they protest, and I think they will, who wouldn't? 
I think Bolsonaro, being a military man himself, will call out the military. And this means tanks in the streets, in a sense, a military coup to preserve his government. I mean, it's an interesting way to look at it. But the complete destruction of really, in a sense, a very fragile democracy in, um, in Brazil since the 80s, after the military went back to the barracks. If there's a military coup there, if you like, it's a reinforcing coup. It's not, in a sense, it would be supporting Bolsonaro. Two quick things I haven't mentioned is that he's too... Three closest advisers appear to be very worrying people. He has appointed as his finance minister a Chicago boy. This is Paolo Gerdish, who, of course, um, did his PhD at the University of Chicago with Milton Friedman there. And he also is very close to the evangelical church, a guy called Silas uh, Marafalia, who is, uh, was the first person at his bedside when he was stabbed. And the most interesting um, development, just to 24 or so hours ago, was that he appointed as his justice minister the judge that put Lula in jail. The other thing, and I should have emphasised this to some extent, is that Lula has been put in jail for corruption. Corruption which is endemic in Brazil. If he's corrupt, well, no doubt he might have been, but the problem is they all are, and he's probably one of the least corrupt of people who've had power in Brazil. Uh, Look, it's a pretty grim picture, and um, I just think that we can't ignore this. As I said, uh, it's not just, and we do care and love the Brazilian people, and we do hope that the things don't get out of hand there, but we've all got a stake in this. I mean, if you care about life on Earth, not just human life, everything. Life on Earth cannot exist without oxygen. I think you you don't have to be a Nobel Prize winner to know what photosynthesis is. And thanks to Dr. Ralph Newmark for allowing me to play his program, which is Latin American Update, which is on 10.30 every Sunday morning. And you might have realised during the end of that, near the end of that, that um, I had to delete the rather long music track for time reasons. But um, do tune in to Latin American Update Sunday mornings at 10.30. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. The Invictus Games were held in Sydney mid to late October and were advertised as featuring athletes who were injured serving in the armed forces of 18 countries. Also that the Games celebrated the undefeated human spirit, triumphing over the injuries that the combatants had suffered and the role that sport plays in their rehabilitation. Today we look behind the Invictus, the Latin word for unconquered, with Michelle Fay. Michelle is the author of a paper titled The Invictus Games, Glossing Over, Inconvenient Truce, the arms trade and the British Royals. First, Michelle, you wrote the paper on behalf of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. What's your current role with the organisation? Uh, yes, I'm the project officer that's working on the Medical Association for Prevention of War's ASAP campaign, which it means Australia Stop Arms Promotion. So it's um, 
project looking at the arms trade and increasing militarism in Australia. First, could you clarify for me whether or not all the people in the Invictus Games were service people? Oh, they are all service people. Not all of the participants in the Invictus Games were injured or wounded or made ill by war. And despite the marketing of For Our Wounded Warriors and the story that was on the website talking about people injured in combat, in fact, about roughly about half were injured or made ill by combat and the other half weren't. But they are all not necessarily current serving members. Some are veterans, but they all have been in the military. And was that made clear in the ads and things for these games? I don't think that the organisers of the games made the selection criteria clear at all. And I think that their marketing, in fact, using this phrase for our wounded warriors definitely gave rise to a certain impression that wasn't actually the case. And that's really evidenced by the fact that quite a lot of the athletes, so almost half of them, were being asked questions all the time of if you weren't injured in war, how come you're in the games? And it was put on to the athletes themselves to have to basically justify their position being in the team. Just moving on to the the name of these games, the Invictus Games, it comes from a, a poem by British poet William Ernest Henley. And he wasn't actually talking about war when he wrote this poem he was talking about his own physical illnesses oh right okay i i knew that um it was the poem was by him and that it means unconquered but i didn't real actually i didn't realize that so i haven't researched his background so that is interesting isn't it yes he was very yeah. ill as a child and lost a leg and just went on and on and he wrote the poem talking about mainly himself and it's also that poem's been or that part of the poem has been used by a lot of other people since then co-opted to a different cause basically exactly yep. yeah i don't know whether we he would have been happy about that but there you go <laughs> we don't know do we <laughs> and then we've got the games themselves and we, we only see a tiny minority of those who served and are injured in wars and and you've pointed out that the suicide rate for returned soldiers, airmen, whatever, is huge compared to the, the the general population and also homeless people. Yes, indeed. There's a lot of issues uh, with our returned service people uh, not getting the care they need from the Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, one example I'll just give there straight away, talking about the numbers, was we had 72 athletes in our Australian squad at the Invictus Games. There are figures of 84 suicides just last year alone amongst veterans, so 12 more people than were even in our team. And the veterans I've talked to say that that number, 84, is in itself conservative because it relies on them having found out or having been told by somebody. So there's probably quite a lot more. There could be more work done on suicide prevention and the tracking the number of suicides, but there have been a few studies done which do indicate that the level is higher than the general population for males in similar age groups, particularly in young men. 
almost twice as many in that uh, lower age group under 30 who have been in the military. Uh, the suicide rate in that age group is almost twice as much for those that have been in the military versus those young men who haven't. And homelessness? Um, homelessness is also, there's very, very little data on this. Um, I did see when I was writing the article one study that had looked at, oh, I'm trying to remember how many people now, 5,000 people I think it was. The proportion of um, ex-service men and women in the homeless population was quite high, higher than they expected. And basically the authors of that study said it really is an area that requires a lot of research. They said Australia is actually quite lax in this as compared with America where they've actually taken it on and doing quite a lot more research and studies into the scope of the problem in America than is being done in Australia. And then we have the sponsors of the Games and I've focused first on the government here in Australia. They're very keen to promote the culture of war and the, the warriors and it's also been pointed out that these Games fit into the the myth of the of the warrior when we talk about things like Anzac Day and Remembrance Day and you sort of worry whether we're going to have a, an Invictus Day as well. <laughs> yes, there's quite a lot of mythology and, oh, well, myth-making is around Anzac Day, Remembrance Day and this. Even Brendan Nelson from the War Memorial himself calls the War Memorial the soul of the nation and, and says if you want to know what it's like to be Australian, all you need to do is pay a visit to the War Memorial. I find that myself quite an offensive concept that we're, that's who we are as a people and we've taken no note of the arts or sports or science or other endeavours at all and that he thinks we can find who we are Australians located in the War Memorial. So I think you're right to say... And that's part of the project I'm working on. We're looking at this steady movement towards the militarisation of our history and culture at the expense of these other aspects. Can you talk a bit more about that, your work? At the moment, we have several aspects, and I suppose the part of it that's the most relevant to our conversation here is we're looking at the Australian War Memorial and the fact that it is being sponsored by these weapon makers so the same thing happened with the Invictus Games. We had the world's largest weapon makers sponsoring that event. These companies are also sponsoring our National War Memorial, which, well, not just Medical Association for Prevention of War, but many historians have also come out saying it's just completely inappropriate. In an opinion piece recently, Douglas Newton even called it grotesque, which is, I think, a word that Peter Stanley, who was himself historian at the War Memorial use that same word, grotesque, and they feel that the War Memorial has lost its way. So part of the work I'm doing now is to draw attention to the fact that these companies are sponsoring the War Memorial. Brendan Nelson, the director of the Memorial, is actively seeking such sponsorship, and we feel that that's entirely inappropriate. Can you name those companies and where they're based? There are all global, the big, all the big global weapons makers are currently sponsoring the War Memorial or have done in the recent past. So that includes companies like Lockheed Martin, that's a current sponsor. In fact, they put money into helping with the Remembrance Day, the recent Remembrance Day centenary. Boeing, BAE Systems, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Thales, Lidos. So 
a large number of these global weapons makers are current sponsors or have been in the last couple of years. It's very hard. Why I sound a bit vague there is because the war memorial itself is vague as to who is sponsoring how much money, what they're actually doing. It's all fairly closely guarded and uh, Dr Nelson isn't really specific about what those companies are doing. So what bits of information we have have come out through Senate estimates uh, to know in terms of the numbers that those companies are giving. But that, all those companies are there. Their logos are even shown in the reception area when you arrive at the War Memorial. The same thing for the Invictus Games. Is there any knowledge of how much they've put into it? I don't know what uh, the extent of that support was there, but the Invictus Games sponsors were, again, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, Leadoff, and also Saab. Then we come to the royal family because we had the the royal opening the Games and he's a, a sponsor. I'm quite sure what his title is. What is his um, title? The Duke of Sussex is right. um, Prince Harry, yeah. And what's his title for these games? Was his idea in the first place, was it? Oh, yes, he was one of the creators of it. So uh, he is the creator of the game and now he's on the foundation that manages it. So, yep. And what's the royal family connection with the arms deals and Invictus Games? Well, the royal family has a very long history of involvement in arms deals and it goes back for some decades. And they actually have close relationships both with BAE, which is the largest British weapons maker, but also regimes such as that in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and the royal family do visit those countries. And basically, I mean, it's all kept quite secret, of course, but there have been instances where, say, for example, Prince Charles has been sent off over to Saudi Arabia and this was in 2014, and the very next day, um, a typhoon jet big deal was arms deal was done between the Saudis and BAE. And there was quite a lot of public outcry in the UK about that one, to the extent where Prince Charles was quoted as saying he didn't want to be sent to the Middle East to do arms deals anymore, which basically is an admission that that's what he's been going there doing. So, yes, I, I think. We needed to ask questions in Australia, and as far as I'm aware, no journalist did, of Prince Harry as to just these relationships with weapons makers and what's actually going on behind the scenes. And finally, but not least, are the fact that so many people in other countries who have been invaded and destroyed by these arms and the wars, they don't get a mention. They don't even have proper health care in their countries because often their health facilities have been destroyed by the very weapons that um, are being promoted at the Invictus Games. Absolutely right. People just don't seem to pull these two things together. So we have the example of Saudi Arabia right at the moment conducting warfare in Yemen where... You know, thousands and thousands of children have died of malnutrition. We have the uh, 14 million people on the brink of starvation. And yet the Australian government in particular still doing arms deals and has still not unequivocally said it's going to stop doing those arms deals. And Yemen, in fact, is not even mentioned as often as the Khashoggi killing of the journalist. And the USA just came out this week saying... 
despite that, it's still steadfastly partnering with Saudi Arabia and hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons um, are traded between those two countries. And the Australian government is currently doing the same, still supplying weapons to Saudi Arabia despite known human rights abuses that the United Nations has pointed out. So it's a very, how can I put it, it's a fraught area that I think enough is not being done to put a spotlight on what is the government is doing, organisations like Invictus Games, like the um, War Memorial, these relationships, it all just swept away and is not being examined and it should be. Well, as you've pointed out, there are virtually no journalists in the mainstream media who tackled this issue your article was published in Pearls and Irritations. Have you had any feedback on that? I've had uh, a fair amount of feedback on the article from people who saw it. But as you say, things like that did not appear in the mainstream media, which is cause for concern, really. That article itself created quite a bit of commentary. And since then, I, I have been having a couple of conversations with veterans from the Vietnam War and other, you know, other interesting connections have been started because of that article and uh, that's been useful for our work. But it is a shame that this issue wasn't canvassed by uh, the mainstream media who basically did the whole royal visit sort of spin thing and totally pushed the arms connection under the carpet. So where does your research go from here, Michelle? Oh, I'm still working on the War Memorial at the moment. I'm working on a piece at the moment with Saudi Arabia looking at all of the companies that sponsor the War Memorial have offices in Saudi Arabia and are doing deals there. And so we're currently working on... I'm still working on trying to get the weapon makers out of the War Memorial... Another aspect of our campaign is the Avalon Arms Fair, which sort of comes along with the air show. But there's going to be a big arms fair in Victoria next year in March. The company that organises that, the um, overriding organiser of the air show and the arms fair, actually has charitable status and receives tax benefits. So um, I'll be also moving on to have a look at how that might be the case. <laughs> so that's a project coming up soon as well. And where will your work carry you through to? What do you hope to do with it? What, what's the, the end goal? I suppose the end goal is to stop what's happening, but in the, in the, in the interim, where does your research go? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so we take a, it's a series of small steps, isn't it? But basically uh, what our aim is is to show how these weapon makers are basically the increasing level of militarism in Australia and to shine a light on that so that people can see because it often doesn't get into mainstream media. So we're trying to find ways to do that. And really, for using the War Memorial as an example, that's really struck a chord with a lot of people who just think it's not on that such companies should be sponsoring the National War Memorial, especially um, as Dr Nelson himself calls it a shrine and it's quite a central iconic organisation in Australian culture and to think these sort of companies are sponsoring it, it, it is a big goal of ours just as an, even a preliminary one to have that seat, to have that sponsorship cease. Do you find yourself blocked from getting information at all or is it openly? 
Oh, no, it's not openly available. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, blocked is, yes. <laughs> it, uh, it's very hard to find out facts uh, because the national security curtain gets pulled over everything. Uh, we lack transparency a lot in Australia as to arms deals, particularly, say, between the Australian government and Saudi Arabia. They're very, very evasive and just give the barest minimum of information. In fact, America is better at that, and you can get information about which companies are selling what to the US government and what it's selling to Saudi Arabia, but none of that information is available here. The government just says commercial incompetence and just does not release the information. We have very little information on what Australia is sending to Saudi Arabia. Have you been able to work with anti-war groups in the US? Uh, no, I haven't done that yet. We have a small team and we sort of put our resources where we can um, and that is something I would like to do and haven't yet. I've started some conversations with the campaign against the arms trade in the UK and so we've, had a little, we've started a little bit of um, information exchange with them but the US certainly would like to do the same. And I suppose there's a fair few countries where people are, are pursuing similar things to you because people just, well, war is just taking over the whole world now and I believe that arms manufacturers are one of the, the biggest industries in the world. Is that right now? Yes, it's very large indeed and as you say, taking over the world. I guess many Australians don't even realise that we've been in a state of warfare since 2001 in our country, so 17 years of constant war which is a period over four times as long as the First World War anyway. And really, this notion of permanent warfare uh, is something that a lot of activists are working on because it's becoming normalised when actually war is an aberration and a failure, but because it's just continuing on, <laughs> um, it's become normalised and people don't even think about it a lot of the time now. I'm quite surprised to realise that Australia's been constantly at war for 17 years. And also constantly sending our people overseas to wars. We've, we've never, except for the, the wars against the Aboriginal people, all the wars have been fighting someone else's war miles away from Australia. And a lot of what happens now, that's right, uh, there's quite a lot of um, opinion that Austra what is Australia doing in the Middle East is it's what has it got to do with our national interest? We send our soldiers over to these wars. It's not really clear why they're there, for how long, what successful missions going to look like. And then, of course, uh, when they return with um, post-traumatic stress disorder and other mental and physical illnesses, um, the government isn't necessarily doing the best job in looking after them as well. So... Our sort of war-making in foreign wars uh, following the US into war creates a whole lot of problems and not to mention a whole extraordinary amount of expense when really it could be said... It's, well, the argument hasn't been put clearly as to how it's in the national interest. Can people follow your work on the MAPW website? Uh, yes, indeed. We have uh, the MAPW, mapw.org.au has a large range of issues and this campaign is one of them, so it is available on that website. 
We also currently have a petition online for people who would like to, to see the War Memorial cease seeking and accepting money from weapon makers. That campaign's called Commemorate, Don't Commercialise. And the web address is a bit long, but if you Google Commemorate, Don't Commercialise, you, uh, it will pop up and you'll be able to sign that petition if you disagree with the War Memorial stance on taking money from these companies. Well, just the size of the place now, it's sort of getting out of hand where they're talking about, well, we'll do a little bit of um, extension and it's $500 million. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, that actually has not yet been approved, although um, Brendan Nelson has been preparing the ground for it for some time. Uh, he first started talking about that, but I've seen it may have been earlier, at least two years ago in a newspaper article. But yes, um, in theory... So far, he's been granted $495 million to expand the war memorial, mostly to show weapons of war, uh, which a lot of people believe, and I agree, it's not necessary to have there uh, to commemorate our war debt. And the war memorial itself has a large facility in a suburb of Canberra that already has room and does show such helicopters and other weapons, you know, other um, machines of war out there. So it's hard to see how we need to dig up and spend nine years turning the War Memorial into a construction site with that kind of money. Well, good luck with it. Thank you very much. And that's Michelle Fay. And do have a look at the MAPW webpage for more information about their campaigns. That's the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And it's coming up to five o'clock. Each year, 3CR celebrates International Day of People with Disability. I want choices and rights. Join us on Monday, December 3rd from 7am to 7pm for a day of dedicated programming. Hear our voices on the issues that matter to us. The right to access, education, empowerment, pride, to creativity and expression, to freedom from discrimination and violence. Tune in on December 3 from 7am to 7pm on 3CR. And join the fight for the choices and rights of disabled people. <laughs> and the last talk for the year with Bob Phelps from Genetics Network and a look at the, the year that is just passing. First, Bob, a meeting of ministers and they're looking at gene technology and other things. They do, yes, that's right. That's the group of ministers from all the governments. So there are nine of them from state, territory and federal governments who get together from time to time. They also regulate food. So they meet and uh, they uh, have their food meeting, then they move on to gene technology. And their last meeting was on October the 11th. To our credit, they couldn't on this occasion make up their mind about whether or not to deregulate many of the new genetic manipulation techniques. They're taking further advice and we're hoping to give it to them because uh, we want them to decide that everything should be regulated. And where else are they getting their advice from? Well, the federal government says that it's giving it to them, but the problem with the feds is that they've already made up their mind that deregulation is a good idea and they've got an expert committee of 
scientists with conflicts of interest to um, give them the advice they want to hear. Really, it'll be A-OK if they just um, deregulate most of the new so-called CRISPR techniques that are coming along, invented in the last five years, no history of safe use and many off-target impacts, and yet they're breaking their neck to regulate them so that the Office of Gene Technology Regulator would not have to worry her poor head about it. And who are those on the expert panel? Can you name them? Probably not name them, but uh, they're people from CSIRO and other so-called independent institutions around country, universities as well, who, um, of course, are seen as experts because they are the ones using the technology, developing the new techniques, very keen not to be regulated themselves. So it's a pretty sticky situation from our point of view. We think public interest lies in the regulator doing what it was set up to do, and that is to regulate gene technologies. But the government wants to exempt uh, many of the new techniques, saying, well, really, they're not much different from traditional breeding. They don't have any safety concerns, so let's just deregulate now before we really get the ball rolling. It'll make it a lot easier for everybody. It'll be the same as with a whole lot of other products. Sometime in the future, if they deregulate them now, they'll have to come back and say, well, okay, guys, we got it wrong. Yes, there have been these impacts. Sorry, we made a mistake. Let's get it right now. That's as far as we're concerned. Just get it right now, and that is regulate everything. Let the public know what's going on. Let's have uh, robust oversight from the regulator that we set up in the year 2000 uh, to do that job. Don't white out the system as... Uh, the scientists and the industry want to do. But it's a bit late if the gene gets out of the bottle. Well, it is indeed. And, of course, this is a debate that's going on around the world. New Zealanders have decided that everything will be regulated. Europe is um, leaning in that direction, although there's, among the 26 member countries, still a lot of debate going on. It looks like they will regulate. And, of course, the USA doesn't like to regulate anything, really including guns and stuff, so uh, <laughs> we'll see what they do. Canada probably may or may not regulate. We're just hopeful that as a result of our efforts, and we will be going back to the state ministers, the ministers of health and agriculture in each state and territory, and saying this is a new technology. The evidence shows that it has off-target impacts, that everything's not as sweet and neat as you're being told, where you can just cut and paste everything will operate as it should. No, the new techniques tend to jumble the genomes of the new organisms with uh, unknown and possibly quite adverse uh, consequences. Another issue that you've been following this year has been the compensation scheme for GM contamination and that's mainly happening or it is happening in Western Australia. Yes, well the very good Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan uh, in the Labor government there has uh, been very sympathetic to the idea that gene technology should be regulated more um, stringently and that um, its negative impacts on landowners if uh, genetically engineered crops or animals uh, get out and harm other farmers or land managers, then there should be a system for compensation. So we've been proposing that for a number of years uh, the minister who is also looking at regenerative agriculture and a number of other new innovations and alternatives to the 
existing industrial system which is collapsing around us to, as the climate change is sympathetic to the idea that there should be a system for compensating anyone who's harmed by the contamination of genetically engineered crops or animals and uh, we haven't heard from them yet but um, a committee of the parliament took evidence in September and October. They'll be reporting next year and we're very confident and hopeful that uh, they will recommend a scheme, a no-fault scheme in which um, there will be a levy on the sale of uh, genetically engineered crop seed and that those funds will go into a, uh, a compensation fund which uh, affected landowners and landholders and managers will be able to access without too much trouble. We know that um, Steve went to court with uh, Monsanto earlier in the decade and, uh, of course, lost the case. And we don't want a repeat of that very expensive and failed uh, attempt to get compensation. It's almost inevitable, isn't it, Bob, that, that contamination will flow onto neighbouring farms because of the way that they put it on from the, the aircraft. Is that correct? Well, you're talking about chemicals there, I think. Yes, there are um, chemical sprays. And I think that's, that's really what the industry is worried about. Genetically manipulated crops, of course, uh, can spread their seed and pollen. We've seen in West Australia in particular incidents like the um, crash of a truck that spread um, GM canola all across the roadway and up and down. Exercise government's mind that uh, the wind and rain and other natural elements can spread uh, seed and pollen around uh, and that there should be some protection for those who are um, ha have their livelihoods, particularly farmers, have their livelihoods impacted as a result. And how many states are there now that are GM-free? Well, there's still South Australia and, of course, we're having uh, a big debate there at the moment about their uh, moratorium, which is due to be extended out to 2025. The government there is trying to turn that round. Tasmania's moratorium appears very solid. The Liberal government there is um, in favour of staying GM-free. The ACT and Northern Territory are also, uh, of course, uh, not growing in genetically manipulated crops. Even in the states where it is grown, it's very, very small. Not going to be an industry that's, um, while, while it's cotton and canola at the moment, there's nothing else in the pipeline. It's not going to grow greatly. And I think the whole of Australia could and should be GM-free, as New Zealand is, uh, one of our close trading partners. It would be much easier for us to have a great reputation for being GM-free and uh, get premiums for our produce and our commodities being exported to Europe, to China and uh, other parts of Asia where there's a very keen market for these products which generally provide a premium for those um, products that are not genetically manipulated in any way. When you think of the promises of genetic materials of say 10, 20 years ago, we're virtually going to have every crop in Australia or around the world was going to be GM. Well it isn't happening and uh, it's come back to bite the people who are proposing that really. I mean, we still have the same five crops that were launched in 1996 soybean, corn, canola and cotton and then the sugar beet which came along later are still the only five broadacre crops that are genetically manipulated and they just have the two traits. There's the Roundup tolerant ones, that's about 
of the GM varieties that can be sprayed more often at higher doses with Roundup, creating all sorts of environmental problems as well. And then there's the BT sect toxins, and of course the insects soon become tolerant of BT. It's a bit of a dead end as well. At the moment, the industry is um, telling farmers and others that, uh, well, we've got this new, these new varieties, these new CRISPR techniques that are going to be able to deliver on the promises that we made about the old GM from the 20th century. And we're saying, well, there's no evidence yet of any such uh, outcome that um, taking the regulations away, pouring more money into this new GM technology is simply another dead end. And it's time that we started putting those scarce research and development resources into new farming systems that are not dependent on chemicals, that don't depend on genetic manipulation, that transition us as the climate changes, as water becomes more scarce, soil is degraded under the existing industrial system. We need to get on to new regenerative ecological farming systems that are just waiting there to be taken up so that we can manage Australian farms and landscapes more effectively and more environmentally friendly. Would you say, Bob, that 2018 may be the beginning of the end of Roundup? Well, yes, I, I think that that uh, might be the summary of it because, of course, um, it's now on the nose around the world and more and more countries, regions and local councils are saying that they don't want to use uh, Roundup as a weed management tool. Monsanto, which was the owner of Roundup, has been sold to Bayer. Bayer will continue to try to promote this, the most used weed killer in the world, to serve its bottom line. But with the case in California, Johnson versus Monsanto, awarding the plaintiff $78 million and some 9,000 other people in the wings to have their cases heard as well. These are people who got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from being exposed during their use of Roundup. Everywhere we see that uh, the questions are being asked about its safety, about uh, the way that it's used. At the moment, for instance, there is a, an inquiry into our own Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, which is the regulator for chemicals, farm chemicals in Australia, an inquiry that was prompted by the Johnson versus Monsanto judgment. Other things like Californian has now required any products, any Roundup products containing the active ingredient glyphosate uh, to be labelled as a carcinogen. Those are the kinds of developments this year that mean that uh, our regulators and governments are having to review that chemical. We're hopeful that it will be phased out. What our research and development people, our scientists need to do is to really get on quickly with discovering alternatives to the liberal spraying of chemicals or land management for the uh, containment and control of weeds. And also, as you said, to look at the APVMA's budget, where their money comes from, and surely that must influence their decisions. Well, they are compromised, yes. Uh, most of their um, nearly $40 million a year budget does come from the chemical industry. And so, for instance, Roundup, uh, which is the most used herbicide, uh, contributes somewhere in the vicinity of $2 million a year uh, to the budget 
of the regulator. Of course, the money goes not directly to them. It goes through Treasury first, but it means that it uh, opens the doors to the regulator's office for the crop life, which is the lead public relations and lobbying arm of the agrochemical industry, and they do influence what is done by the regulator, in our opinion. People who have used Roundup for many years say, well, I've used it all those years and I haven't have any bad side effects and there's nothing else to replace it with. What do you say to them? Well, exercise extreme caution is obviously the first thing to do. Of course, bear in mind that the home garden variety of Roundup is just 1% solution of the active ingredient, whereas if you're on a farm, you'll be using probably a 40% solution. So it's farmers in particular and farm workers who are, who are particularly at risk. And in the Four Corners program about the Monsanto papers and the disclosures about Roundup, which were on the TV about a month ago, following the Johnson versus Monsanto case, the program did come back to Australia and did investigate the consequences of that in Australia and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma here is badged the farmer's disease because it's pretty rampant out on the land and it's now almost certain that glyphosate, the Roundup ingredient, is implicated in causing disease among our farming community at higher rates. That is simply unacceptable that people are sick and dying from a chemical that they were told was so safe that you could drink it. What's the percentage of glyphosate that the councils use and also those who control the weeds in our waterways? Well, it would be one of the stronger formulations as well. Of course, there are 500 different <laughs> Roundup products or glyphosate products registered by the regulator in Australia, so it's just hard to say what any particular user is using except for that which is on the shelves in our supermarkets and hardware's. So we do see around the streets of our towns and cities those kids in uh, thongs and shorts spraying round up pretty liberally in public places where pets and children in particular can be exposed. That's why councils are now seriously reviewing their use of this product. Difficult to say, but we're encouraging uh, councils to get very serious about uh, their exposure to uh, liability for the impacts on their workers. We're already in a situation where 35 councils have either already given up using Roundup or are testing alternatives like the weed steamers, for instance. And uh, we are hopeful that uh, most of the 700 councils in Australia, as a result of reviewing their current policies, will decide that they should find alternative weed management systems because they are available. We saw, for instance, the city of Yarra recently sign a contract for five years with the weed steaming company and their estimate of the cost is one dollar per resident per year which is uh, pretty affordable I'd say particularly when you consider the downsides of exposing uh, your citizens to a chemical that may be causing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and potentially other illnesses as well because there's evidence around for instance that Roundup and its active ingredient will affect embryos, for instance. Our children are at risk as well, even before they're born, and that's not a situation 
in which we should have uh, our community exposed. You're saying that the glycosate or the Roundup that's used by farmers is 40% more than what people might be using in their gardens. How does that impact on crops and also food that that the farmers are growing? Well, one of the um, hidden uh, dangers of all this is that um, Roundup, Diquat, Paraquat and a couple of other chemicals are registered uh, with the regulator for pre-harvest desiccation. That's to say, just before the crop is harvested, the boom sprayers and the aeroplanes can come in, spray the whole crop to uh, kill off the, the leaves and the other vegetation, drop out the crop prior to the harvest. And what we now know is that that inevitably leaves residues in the harvested grains and oil seeds and uh, things like lentils and so on. Those residues, of course, are getting into the human food supply and into us. That's a whole issue that needs to be discussed and raised as well, that uh, there is an avenue into the human animal population uh, that, of course, the regulators say, oh, we've got that under control, we monitor that. But civil society groups like Friends of the Earth, for example, are now talking about doing what is being done in Europe, which is the testing of people's hair for the presence of uh, Roundup residues. And in Europe, they are getting positive results. That's to say they are finding residues in the hair of those who are tested. And it's about time we started, our regulators started doing some systematic testing here as well. Of course, food standards and the pesticide authority collaborate together to set what are called maximum residue limits of pesticide residues in food. But these are set really with the use of the chemical on the farm as the benchmark and then they take it from there, getting that correct as far as the chemical industry and the farmers are concerned and then they divide by 100 and say, well, that's the maximum residue level and that's safe for animals and humans. We don't think so. Of course, what has happened with the introduction of the genetically manipulated crops that are routinely sprayed with Roundup is that the maximum residue levels have been lifted dramatically since those introductions. And to our way of thinking, and this is one of the questions that we're asking the regulator, was there any new evidence that would justify the raising of these levels? Because it looks like the mere introduction of the crops which you were going to spray more often and at higher doses was actually the trigger, not new evidence of safety. Is there also a danger of of animals being brought into those paddocks once the the spraying is done and the um, crops has been taken off the off the property? Well, there is. Um, some farmers do graze their animals on stubble, but the other more direct thing is that, uh, for example, this year there has been a drought, of course, very generally across Australia, and just in this week's Weekly Times, there's an article entitled "Canola Harvest Plunges." which shows that um, the harvest of canola nationally is down in every state where it's grown. For instance, in Victoria, last year there were 750,000 tonnes grown, and this year it's just 250,000. And the reason for that is that when the drought hits, the farmers cut their um, canola crop for fodder, which is fed to animals. And, of course, if it's genetically manipulated, or even if it's not, 
it will have been sprayed, over-sprayed with chemicals, whether it's the Roundup or in the case of some of the other varieties, Triazine, which is also um, a very nasty chemical indeed, been sprayed on the canola crop. And that is then cut because it uh, won't mature and is fed to animals as well. So yes, chemicals are going into the animal feed supply and are affecting, of course, um, the meat, milk and eggs uh, of the animals that eat those residues from the harvest. What happens to the empty drums and containers of these chemicals on the farms? Well, the Crop Life, which is the um, main lobbying group here and uh, is a global network of uh, disinformation on chemicals and engineering, has set up in Australia a thing called Drum Muster, which uh, is a scheme for recycling empty containers out of farms so that they're not buried or simply dumped in waterways and so on as they used to be down the back of the farm. But at the moment, because there is a levy on the whole system to pay for it and some companies have started to refuse to pay the levy, we're seeing that uh, farmers are um, between a rock and a hard place in that they've got all these drums of these toxic chemicals and leftovers from their spraying programs and nowhere to take them except perhaps to the local dump where they're going to go into landfill and uh, create problems as well. So we are saying to the regulator during this current review, drum muster must become mandatory as well, not a voluntary program, and that uh, crop life and the regulator need to insist that uh, the plastic drums are taken off the farms and that they have a responsibility too to minimise the use of chemicals, we're asking the regulator to gradually start putting itself out of a job and to be proposing, as some of the governments are, the regenerative agriculture systems, organic systems, which are not reliant on the liberal spraying of synthetic chemicals. Uh, it's not good enough. Industrial agriculture's day is done and we need to move on quickly to non-chemical, non-industrial systems of uh, food production worldwide, not just in Australia. We need to be supporting those small family farmers who in fact are the ones that uh, feed most of the world. Finally, Bob, the election at the weekend. Yep, the election. Well, we um, did put out a, uh, an election questionnaire on uh, synthetic chemicals and genetically mo manipulated organisms. We only got two responses from the Greens and the Socialists uh, it would have been nice to hear from the uh, old parties. So we'll now be going to knock on their doors and make sure that um, our questions are answered. We want some new policies on genetically manipulated crops. We want new policies on the synthetic chemicals, new policies also on the research and development of the alternatives that we've talked about. We need to be getting out of allowing our research and development effort to be focused on the old systems of, of growing our food and fibre and we need new systems in place uh, particularly as I've mentioned as the climate changes things out on the land get even tougher than they are now we need some new ways of ensuring that all Australians are fed, housed and clothed without so drastically impacting the environment that um, it collapses that's the choice that we're now confronted with. And we'll hear more about genetics and related issues from 
Bob Phelps in 2019. It's a bit scary, isn't it? Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilda. Why don't you come on down, do the Google thing, check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us or help you look after the planet. And by the way, don't forget to support 3CR. Six weeks in New Caledonia, resorts, sand, golf, spas, swimming pools, pity you had to work most of the time. Who am I talking about? Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And he spent most of that time covering the lead-up to the recent referendum election. Nick, the result stayed with France for now? Yeah, the result of New Caledonia's referendum on self-determination was was really interesting. Going back to the 1970s, the independence movement uh, in New Caledonia has been calling for recognition of Kanak sovereignty, the indigenous Melanesian people, and for political independence from France. The conflicts of the 1980s ended in a series of agreements, firstly in 1988 called the Matignon Accord, and then in 1998 the Numir Accord. And the 1998 agreement set out a a 20-year transition to a vote on self-determination, a vote on whether New Caledonia should stay within the French Republic or whether it should strike out as an independent sovereign country. And indeed it's the first of three proposed referenda. The Namir Accord has really unique provision in it that if the first referendum uh, was no, as was the case on the 4th of November, um, there's scope for two more referenda in a couple of years' time, in 2020, 2021, or again in 2023. Um, So this process is not over, and the really significant feature of this vote was although a majority of New Caledonians voted to stay within the French Republic, the independence movement did much better than anyone was expecting. Why? Part of it was work on the ground over a long period to mobilise voters in support of independence, particularly within the indigenous Kanak community, but also people within other islander communities. Um, There are many people from other francophone uh, countries in the Pacific, like Vanuatu, Wallace and Futuna, French Polynesia, a lot of Tahitians and Walesians live in New Caledonia. Indeed, there are more Walesians in New Caledonia than there are in their home islands. These are people who come to work in New Caledonia's nickel industry, which is the major industry, nickel mining and smelting. The other key strategic reason was an overconfidence on the conservative anti-independence parties and indeed the French state, who felt that the call for independence, the dream for independence had died. And it was very interesting that uh, I spent um, about six weeks in New Caledonia leading up to the referendum going around talking to a range of people, not just in the capital, Namia, but all around the country. And it was clear that there was a lot of movement on the ground. And I can talk about about that in a sec. But I I also interviewed key anti-independence leaders, a guy called Philippe Gomez, who's leader of the largest anti-independence party called Caledonia Ensemble. And they'd flooded the country with propaganda. They'd produced this glossy 24-page book, you know, about the the reasons to stay with France. They'd held meetings all over the country. They'd done TV advertising. They've had a lot of money behind them from the business community in New Caledonia and also the business community in France. And in their propaganda, they said, we're going to win this 70-30, 70% in favour of the no vote, in favour of staying with France, only 30% in favour of independence, yes, for independence. 
And when I interviewed Gomez, I said, look, your prediction, been around for a long time, about 70-30, doesn't match what I'm seeing on the ground, that there's quite a dynamism in the independence campaign. And he said, no, 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 we're going to win, we're going to win. They were wrong. They believed their own propaganda. As Victorians, you only have to look at the, the sort of law and order campaign that the, uh, uh, that the government was running, which was echoed by the anti-independence people. They ran a campaign of fear that independence would lead to collapse of the health system, no more teachers, uh, gangs roaming the streets, um, lock up your daughters, and all that sort of stuff was played out in the same way. That same racist agenda against Canucks was played out through a lot of the conservative parties. People voted for hope instead of fear. New Caledonia doesn't have compulsory voting, and so it was a matter of mobilising people to come out. And one of the interesting things to see was that there was a a really high turnout of people who were registered to vote. Um, over 80%, 81% of people came to vote. Now, that's much higher than normal elections. You know, last year they had the French presidential elections and 47% of people turned out to vote in the first round. I think about 54% in the second round. So an 80% turnout, as you can see, is much higher. And so talking to a lot of Canucks, particularly young Canucks, they realised that this vote was about the future of the country rather than a normal election. Were yeah. there any people that were denied the vote because the registration wasn't done properly? Yeah, and this was a, a, a long battle going back over three or four years. Yeah, three years ago, sections of the independence movement raised concern that not all Indigenous Canucks were registered to vote. It's quite a complex voting system in New Caledonia because it's a colony of France, what the UN calls a non-self-governing territory. They have three different electoral lists. The first electoral list is for all French nationals. So, you're, you know, everyone's a French citizen, everyone's a French national, and so you get to vote for the National Assembly in France, the French Senate in Paris, the European Parliament, because it's part of Europe, and so on, as well as the local institutions. The Canucks fought since the 1980s to restrict voting, however, for local institutions to long-term residents. So if you're a French public servant or a soldier who arrives for two or three years, you shouldn't be able to determine who sits in the, the three provincial assemblies and the National Congress. And that was a victory that was won more than a decade ago after a long struggle to restrict who can vote for the local political institutions. So you've got one electoral list for the French institutions, one for the local institutions. Then there's a third list for the referendum, which has a different cut-off date, um, 1994 for who can get to vote so it's indigenous Canucks plus other people who are you know, born in the country but um, have come from Europe, from Wallace, from Asia wherever, over, over many years the problem was the French courts ruled that not only did you have to be registered on the referendum list but also on the general list on the French list and many tens of thousands of Canucks weren't registered on the general list Either they refused to because why vote for the European Parliament? We're not European, you know. So people didn't bother registering or voting for the National Assembly, for the Senate. Um, many Canucks have lost their civic rights because they've been convicted of crimes and so on. And so about three years ago, it was estimated that more than 25,000 Indigenous Canucks weren't registered to vote for the referendum. Now, that's in a country of only 270,000 people. So it's a significant block. 25,000, on rough, rough figures, 25,000 out of 90,000 people with customary Indigenous status weren't registered. 
What about the people from Wallace and Fortuna? Well, see, they're registered because they're French citizens. Right. And, so, and this was the problem, that p- there's a particular customary status and many people who had that status. So there was a big campaign for automatic registration of all Indigenous Kanaks. And the anti-independence people said, well, then everyone should be automatically registered, you know. So there's this big fight that went on. And for a long time, people poo-pooed this figure of 25,000. But then over time, really up until the end of last year, France recognised that that this was going to delegitimise the vote. And so they brought on another 11,000 people were registered automatically, 7,000 Canucks, 4,000 people from other communities. And they mounted a publicity campaign telling people to come and register. And, you know, there's a lot of problems because you have to go to the town hall with identity papers and all these sorts of things. So if you're living in a squatter settlement, in Numia, where the town halls are run by the anti-independence parties, it's sometimes quite hard to get registered. And many young people were not registered um, just because of the difficulties of going through all the bureaucracy to get onto three different lists. And so, you know, there's quite a lot of people. And, it, and even after a long struggle over three or four years to sort this problem out, estimates maybe 3,000 Canucks couldn't vote. Once again, that's a significant proportion of only 174,000 people voted so it's you know it's a, uh, another percentage point either way that's quite significant and people living on outlying islands once again there was a problem um, many people from the outer islands have moved to the capital Numia or to the towns that surround Numia Mondor, Dumbea, Pater sort of outlying towns a bit like Dandenong to, to central Melbourne and so you had uh, a significant issue that if you're registered to vote back in the town hall where you were born, um, you either have to travel back there to physically vote or you have to arrange proxies. But proxies were very difficult. And once again, there was a whole bureaucracy to get the proxy in order to be registered. Um, and the French set a whole series of cut-off dates about when you had to apply for proxies. And in, in the end, it was right up to the last minute. And I had a very good friend, a very experienced person. She's vice president of the Economic and Social Council, she was sick, and her doctor said, you shouldn't fly back to your home island of Lifu to vote. Uh, it's bad for your health to fly. So she, at the last minute, had to arrange a proxy. She sent in the, the proxy form, and the doctor, who detested that she was sick, had made a mistake and crossed out her birth date and rewritten it in pencil, and they refused the form. So her proxy wasn't, uh, wasn't counted. In the end, she had to go and complain and, and say, this is a trivial mistake, and here's my medical certificate. Come on, guys. And they finally let her vote. But you know, if, if this well-educated senior woman can't get to vote, what's it like for a young kid from the squatter settlements who, who, you know, hasn't gone through all the paperwork and meets some sort of French bureaucracy? And France brought 250 senior magistrates, public servants and others to staff pretty much all the polling booths. There were 284 polling booths, and the French brought a an official representative to staff each of the polling booths to adjudicate on questions like, you know, ballot papers and, and scrutineering and, and so on. So it was pretty tightly regulated uh, voting, and many Canucks feel that that, that, um, that set them back a bit. Do all Canucks speak French? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a few old people, but yes, there's French as the lingua franca, because there's 28 um, different Canuck languages, a number of dialects, and so um, across the country... French is the, the common language. Since the Numir Accord, um, there's been a reform of the education system and the government of New Caledonia, rather than the government of Paris, government of France, now runs both primary and secondary education. And they've been integrating English 
and vernacular languages into the curriculum. So now in many rural areas you can study by Chichimui or Harachu or Aje, Nengone, the languages of uh, the indigenous population. And as we've seen with multilingual education in Northern Territory in Australia, it has a lot of advantages if kids learn English, or the dominant language like French in New Caledonia, but also can have early years of education in their own vernacular language, the language they're often speaking at home. And so there's been real reforms of education that's been really crucial in educating a younger generation about their possibilities. And that was really striking to see the young people turn out. The image that was portrayed in the media, and I think the misjudgment of the conservative parties was that young people weren't interested in politics. And that's true to a certain extent. When you talk to young Canucks, they see all, there's a bit like the global phenomenon. They see a lot of politicians as corrupt or useless or not really addressing their core concerns. Same concerns that young people have here about jobs, about sexuality, about climate change, about the future of their culture and their identity. But young people were really aware about this. As an anecdote, I, I reported on the 2014 elections for the political institutions, the Congress, the assemblies in New Caledonia. And I went and was doing some vox pop, you know, going to talk to people as they came out of the polling booths. And in the working class suburb of Rivier Soleil, I noticed a young bloke, a young bunch of blokes kicking a football round on the nearby soccer field. And they were young Kanaks, Rasta hairdos, you know, Kanaki flag and Elwai Mushro, Bob Marley on their t-shirts and, and so on. And I went to talk to them and ask them, were they voting? And they said, oh, we're not fucking interested in voting. It's, it's ridiculous. But we'll be there on Jourget, D-Day. And D-Day was referendum day. And they were. Thousands of young people who've never voted before came out to vote. And in the Kanak community, most of them voted yes. When you say the Kanak community, how widespread is that over the islands? Are the French in sort of a ghetto part of New Caledonia? Yeah, there's real distinctions across the country. The indigenous Kanaks, the indigenous Melanesian population, the Kanak people are about 39% of the population, so they're a minority in their own country, and that's one of the problems with all the debates about registration and voting rights and things like that. Um, there's also a, a level of uh, intermarriage between communities, so Kanaks marrying Walesians, Kanaks marrying Europeans, and so on. So maybe another 10% of the population are called Metis, which is the term for mixed race um, that is that's used quite widely. The Europeans make up nearly 30%, and there's another 10%, 12% of people from Wallace, from Tahiti, parts of Asia, and so on. So it's quite a, a multicultural community, but it's really ghettoized, as you say. The three provinces, the north, the Loyalty Islands and the South are quite distinct. The Loyalty Islands is overwhelmingly Kanak, 97% Indigenous Kanak. And the Loyalty Islands never lost their land. On the main island, Grand Terre, was colonised um, by free, first by prisoners, then free settlement, uh, and the Kanaks lost their land and were pushed up into the, the mountain valleys. Whereas in the Loyalty Islands, under the protection of the London Missionary Society in colonial days, they held on to their land. So the Loyalty Islands is overwhelmingly... Indigenous. The north, similarly, about 80% of the northern province are Indigenous Kanak. In the south, however, it's reversed. Kanaks only make up, I think, 24% of the population. So the south has always been a bastion of anti-independence support. And what we've seen is, um, under the Numir Accord since 1998, an attempt for not only political rebalancing, but economic rebalancing. You know, the south, historically, always had the majority of the key infrastructure 
you know, the capital Noumea, the main hydroelectricity plant, the only nickel smelter in the country in the capital Noumea, um, all the tourism infrastructure, Club Med and hotels and things like that, was in the south. And so, you know, the, the rural areas where the Canaks are the majority were underdeveloped, um, really cattle country um, on the west coast and small villages on the east coast of the main island. And what we've seen over the last 20 years has been a real effort to promote economic activity in the rural areas. The biggest one we've talked about before on this program has been the, the development of the Coniambo nickel smelter, a major $6 billion piece of infrastructure in the northern province, which is uh, drawing on nickel um, from the Coniambo Massif, a man- mountain range full of nickel. Um, New Caledonia's got about 25% of the world's nickel reserves. And so the Coniambo project is a huge operation, provided a lot of employment and provided a lot of spin-offs with people supplying infrastructure and truckers and, you know, local businesses. Um, there's now hotels in the north, um, so people... And also there's a whole eco-tourism industry trying to get people to stay in connect tribes, you know, stay in a bungalow. And, and I travelled to the island of Uvea and spent a week there during the referendum campaign and talked to people on the island, just stayed in a literally a grass hut, a traditional cars um, in, in the village. Um, and, you know, it's got a bed and a PowerPoint and a light and that's all, but that's fine. It was comfortable and 10 metres walk to the beach every morning for a swim. It was really uh, very pleasant. I think that's, uh, you know, the sort of economic development that's been a central part of the Canaks in the Loyalty Islands and in the Northern Province trying to seize control, not only of the political agenda, but also the economic agenda. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, and you are listening to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan talking about the recent referendum vote in New Caledonia. Is it mainly nickel or are there other minerals or are there other there's fishing? Other, there's other strategic minerals, um, cobalt. Uh, New Caledonia's got about 3% of the world's cobalt. Um, the Congo's got 90-odd percent, China's got a bit, we've got a little bit in Australia, but that's a, that's a vital thing, cobalt and coltan also, uh, these are really strategic metals that are used in mobile phones, in playstations, in catalytic converters for electric cars, I mean there's, you know, the, New Caledonia has a lot of minerals, but nickel's the main game, and um, you know, it's a commodity that's used in everything from pots and pans to rockets that go to Mars to armaments. Um, there's always a market, you know, and there was a nickel boom in New Caledonia in the late 1960s and 70s because of the space race with, you know, the Americans trying to get to the moon and because of the Vietnam War. So there's massive demand for nickel, and that was one of the problems for the indigenous Kanak people that, um, you know, thousands of people came from France and from Wallace and Fortuna to work in the nickel mines at that time of the, the great nickel boom. People old enough may, in, in Australia may remember Poseidon, which was a, an Australian company that boomed on the share market because it had enormous nickel reserves. It boomed and crashed, and with the end of the Vietnam War, the nickel industry collapsed um, in New Caledonia, just as in Australia. Now China is a significant market for nickel, and one of the interesting things... I interviewed Andre Dang, who's the director of the SMSP Mining Company. Uh, this is part of Sofinor, the Northern Province Development Arm. And they've done incredible deals where they've maintained 51% control over three projects. The Coniambo smelter I mentioned in the Northern Province, control of a smelter in Korea, and now a smelter in China. And that's amazing. It's the only foreign investment project in China where 51% is controlled 
by the foreign owner. In this case, it's the Northern Province, uh, which is controlled by the independence movement, has been since the late 80s. And they've done this amazing deal where they save the best nickel, high-quality, 2.3-grade nickel, for the smelter in Coniambo, producing a high, you know, what's called value-adding for the economists out there, you know, to, instead of just shipping raw ore out to Japan, to Australia, as they used to do, now they're processing and earning more value by making the metal rather than shipping out themselves. They're exporting second-grade nickel to a factory in Korea. Once again, they control 51% in, Korea, in partnership with the Korean corporation POSCO, and they've just started the first shipments gone to China, to uh, a, a company in China. Once again, the northern province has 51%, and this is really low-grade ore, so they're selling their shitty ore to the Chinese, who will take anything to make pots and pans, and the money from that helps pay for the, their share of the good smelter process in, uh, in Coniambo. It's a very ambitious agenda. It's really reliant on a, on a small core of people who've got the capacity to do this. And this guy, Andre Dang, is an amazing guy. He could sell ice cream to the Eskimos. He's an astounding negotiator. An amazing life story. His father was an indentured labourer who died in the nickel mines in the 1930s, raised by his mother. He started selling Toyotas um, at a time when everyone else was selling Peugeots and uh, uh, Renaults and made his first fortune selling Toyotas and became good friends with the Kanak independence movement in the 70s, was driven out of the country into exile, um, lived in Australia for a number of years and made another fortune selling Toyotas to the Vietnamese after the end of the Vietnam War. He's come back, now retired, but still advising the company on basically how to do deals with China. Um, And at a time when Australians' national security state and all our think tanks and most of our media are absolutely fanatical about the Chinese taking over the Pacific... They give no agency to Pacific Islanders who are trying to negotiate with China and get a better deal for resources. And we've seen around the region companies like Rio Tinto operating at Panguna in Bougainville who exploited the resources, who polluted the river and who walked away in the Grasberg mine, Freeport McMurran and Rio in, in West Papua, the Octedi mine in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, the Panguna mine. You know, the record about how Australian and South African-backed mining companies have operated in this region is a shameful record of environmental destruction and ripping off the revenues from resources. And the Kanaks have seen that happen around them, seen that happen across Melanesia, and have learnt the lessons and are now trying to control their economy. Now, they're not winning. Uh, It's still a French colony, and the French still control key economic powers, but they're having a good fist of it, and I think it's a really interesting example that should be looked at as, for example, Bougainville moves towards a decision on its political future in the next couple of years. Just go back to the beginning where we started with the, the referendum, and it goes back to the 1980s, which led to the two accords. Were the people still alive in... New Caledonia who remember those dreadful years of the 80s and why was there such trouble? The Kanak people were brought into political institutions very late. You know, right through the the first century of colonialism, Kanaks couldn't vote. Indeed, it was only after the Second World War that women, as well as indentured labourers, and the Kanak people got the vote. So the creation of the political party Union Caledonienne in 1953, one of the first attempts to get you know, indigenous Kanaks into politics, into parliamentary politics. Until then, it had been run by the European settler community. And Union Caledonienne 
by the 1970s was changing from supporting greater autonomy within France towards a position of independence, mm-hmm. led particularly by a charismatic leader named Jean-Marie Chibau, great man who uh, you know, was a former seminarian, come through the Catholic Church, but was very strong about Kanak cultural identity and saying that the, this was not just a Malaysian people, but this was the Kanak people, not a Kanak community, a, a subset of the broader multicultural New Caledonia, but that the Kanak people were the indigenous people, were the colonised people, and using the term people as a nation in waiting rather than just simply an ethnic group. He said, we are the first people and we should be recognised as such. And Chibau organised in 1975 a ceremony, a cultural ceremony called Melanesia 2000, which brought together people from all over the country to say, look, we're not just Lothi Islanders, we're not from the north, we're from the south, we are a people. At the same time, a generation of students were coming back from France. The first people got their university education in the late 60s or 70s, and it was a bad time to be sending people to university in Europe because, of course, the massive mobilisation against the Vietnam War, the rise of feminism and gay rights and a very strong black is beautiful in French people talk about negritude you know there's a whole lot of writers particularly from Africa um, who were talking about third worldism and so on so a generation of leaders who now are really a key figures like Paul Neotin the president of the northern province was a third worldist you know studying in Montpellier he came across Marxism and feminism and a whole range of things so there's two strands the church educated leaders coming through the historic parties like Union Caledonienne, and a 1970s generation of people came to political independence. There's a wonderful book by David Chappell, who, who's called The Kanak Awakening. He's a historian from Hawaii. And David's written a, a history about this period that talks about this mobilisation of Kanak identity. And remember, this was happening all around the region. 1975, when Chabau held... Um, the Melanesia 2000 festival was the year that Australia entered being a colonial power in Papua New Guinea. You had Bernard Narakobi and others talking about the Melanesian way. The Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Conference was in 1975. 1977, Father Walter Lingi in Vanuatu, an Anglican priest, formed the Vanuatu Party out of the old National Party and called for a boycott of the elections, led his country to independence three years later. In Tahiti in 1977, Oscar Temeru formed the Polynesian Liberation Front. He later became president. In fact, I met him uh, campaigning in New Caledonia because he realises that New Caledonian independence would help his independence struggle. So now an old man, he's still fighting for independence. Gary Foley, 1978, went to a meeting in the Federated States of Micronesia of the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Movement, calling for indigenous rights alongside all of these leaders, Walter Lini, Dewa Garode, Oscar Temeru and others. So that pan-Pacific campaigning came at a particular moment in history. And for that generation, it's a very important time. What's the great significance of this referendum was that the generation born later than that who only knew that from the tales, the old war stories told by their parents and grandparents, came out to vote. So an 18-year-old voting for the first time in this referendum wasn't born when the Namir Accord was signed, let alone when their parents and grandparents were putting up roadblocks and barricades during the 1980s, were literally fighting the French army during the 1980s. That's ancient history, and it's not well taught in the schools. But the word has passed. And one of the amazing things about the campaign was seeing that I went to a concert in Dumbaya, free concert in the park, the Concert for Independence, 9 to 5 all day, and they had bands, Kanaka bands, rock and roll, reggae bands, all day, interspersed with speeches, 
and, not surprisingly, free concert in the park, getting the bus out there. There were hundreds of kids trying to get on the bus for a free concert and about 2,000 people there, which is a big crowd by New Caledonian standards. No white fellows there, very few islanders there. I was sort of wandering around and people were looking at me, thinking, what are you doing here? That sort of work was being done to get the message across. Now, that concert was not reported on the nightly news under the French state-controlled media. It wasn't reported the next day in any serious way in the daily newspaper, which was controlled by anti-independence businessman named Jean Doe, who owns quite a lot of businesses and is fiercely opposed to independence. But that sort of grassroots campaigning was really powerful. And when I was on the island of Vea, I went out with a team of FLNKS activists to a, a Kanak tribe. Um, these are tribal reserves um, uh, on the island and uh, at a loop near the airport. And we um, watched this presentation, very small crowd, maybe 25, 30 people, you know, young people and old from the village. And there was a presentation about why you should vote yes, why you should vote and why you should vote yes for independence. You know, there was a, a lot of questions and debate. Half of it was in Yai, the local language, so I didn't quite follow it. But the, the, the tone and atmosphere, you realise that some of the old women were asking really hard questions about what's going to happen to our pensions and, you know, our superannuation. Uh, if Will France continue to provide the health care? Um, what's going to happen in the future? And so there's a whole display, PowerPoint, about public finance. You know, where would we get the money for independence? And what happens to the money that comes now? So, you know, really concrete discussion. There's a bit of criticism in the early days of the FLNKS campaign that they were waving the flag and not really addressing these very practical and pragmatic questions because independence is not a word. It's about how you run the country. And I think next time round, you know, there'll be a campaign that will address a lot of these concerns uh, in, a, in a more detailed manner. Um, but it was really interesting to see that sort of work that was happening below the radar. And the opinion polls right, you know, right through were saying that the independence would, movement would get 25 to 30% of the vote. The right-wing propaganda was talking about a crushing defeat for the independence movement, a, a, a strategic setback. And it would have been if they'd got 25 or 30% of the vote. It would be very hard to go to elections next May for the local institutions, be very hard to go to the next meeting in Paris with the French government and hold your ground. But the final turnout was massive and 43%, more than 43% of people voted for independence. So it's certainly not a yes. You know, the majority of New Caledonians voted no, but no one thinks that the FLNK has lost, everyone recognises that there was a significant strategic advance to get that close. Only 18,000 votes have to change for there to be an independent and sovereign nation. There's another referendum scheduled uh, in two years' time. Under the Namir Accord, a third of the Congress can vote for a second re- to hold a second referendum, and it has to be held in two years. Now, the independence movement's already got 40-odd percent of the Congress, um, so they can easily get the numbers to call for a second referendum. And now they have the wind in their sails towards that. And by coincidence, Bougainville will also be voting in 2020-2021 for a referendum on independence. Once again, that's complex, as we've talked about before. Most Bougainvillians will probably vote yes, but then the change has to be made by the PNG Parliament, and most Papua New Guineans don't want Bougainville to be independent and the likelihood is that the parliament will vote no and there'll be a serious crisis. So Australians need to pay attention to what's going on in the world around them. You know, our media keeps talking about the Chinese taking over the region. 
well, yeah, but countries are trying to forge their own path in between great and powerful friends to control their economy, to control their political future, and things are moving in Melanesia, in PNG, in Bougainville, in New Caledonia. These are our closest neighbours, and uh, Australians need to be more engaged with those, uh, those regions. And it's many thanks once again to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, who spends uh, a lot of his time in the Pacific speaking to the people, the real people in those island states. That's about all for me for today, but I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Done By Law. Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.